This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Hello and welcome to the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is my co-host, the professor, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello, everybody. And tonight we are joined by a very special guest. She is not only a blogger, owner of the Emily's Deadly Doorhouse of Horror Nonsense, but also one half of the podcasting Wonder Twins that is the Feminine Critique. It, of course, gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show the one and only Miss Emily Intrevia. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, everybody. Well, thank you, obviously, for joining us here on uh, episode 25, and tonight we're talking about Battle Royale. This is uh, a big show around, because originally we were going to say Battle Royale to number 50, but as we said on last week's episode, the way the world's going at the minute, we may not get to 50, so we're just shunting it forward to 25, and I could not be more excited to talk about this film, because it is such a touchstone of not only cult cinema, but also... Asian cinema, especially in terms of it being brought across to like the UK and America, because it was this film along with like Audition and The Ring, which really sort of sparked that big boom in the reinterest in in Asian cinema. Uh, would you say, Stuart? No, I think it's shit. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I absolutely agree. <laughs> it's um absolutely you name you name just one of those touchstone films at the beginning of the two thousands when Asian cinema and certainly extreme Asian cinema certainly made its way to the UK shores. Um but whereas maybe Audition and the Ring um are pure horror movies and therefore maybe not to everybody's taste. I think Battle Royale touched a different chord, a different audience. Um, I know people who have watched Battle Royale that wouldn't be interested in watching Audition or The mm. Ring. Um, so I think it's um, it, it's also a film that I know I can show to people and they're not that <laughs> bothered about the subtitles. Yes. Mm-hmm. Good point. I mean, Emily, for yourself... Where's your sort of like uh, grounding when it comes to Asian cinema? I mean, was it sort of the case of that cross pollination with obviously the big boom in J horror, as we said, around 2000, that it sort of led you into watching more Asian cinema? Or were you watching Asian cinema before uh, things like Audition and The Ring were it, coming across? That's a good question. And I'm trying to think back. And now this came out in 2000, but nobody in the U.S. saw it for a while. No. Uh, it, yeah, I mean, because it, it, <laughs> it still has never actually had a theatrical release here and it never only what was it last year or the year before did it finally get an actual american dvd release before that you were always getting a bootleg i saw this in 2006 when i was actually living in korea i taught english in korea for a year and that was when i think this you know i will say um don't record me saying this <laughs> but this was a period of time when i downloaded and streamed a lot of movies because I was living in another country, had a lot of, like, kind of made a lot of new friends who were movie people that were introducing me to things that I hadn't known of. And because it's 2006 and suddenly it's very easy to access movies that you might otherwise have had a very hard time finding. Yeah. Uh, so by the time I watched it, it was somebody saying to me, oh, I can't believe you haven't seen this one because, you know, you've seen all these extreme movies. And when the... Asian kind of J-horror thing hit the U.S., which I guess The Ring was kind of the big one. 
I mean, at that point, I guess I wasn't, even though I was still seeing every horror movie that I could, I don't know that the Asian horror films, the way they kind of were presented, just they were very ghosty and yeah. they were very, uh, and a lot of them were kind of PG-13. They were aimed at a younger audience almost. And so it was just never something I needed to get into. But then with Battle Royale, it's, you're right, it's it's not, a horror, I mean, it's it's in whatever you want to call it. It's an action, it's a drama, it's horror. And it is probably the movie that I have shown or shared with the most people. Because I, cause then, even by 2008, when I was back in the U.S., and I would talk to people at work about movies, and I would mention Battle Royale, and they'd say, I've never heard of that. And, okay, here, take my DVD. <laughs> my DVD is, like, scratched beyond belief from being lent around so many people. Unquestionably so. And I think as we both touched upon, this is one of those few movies that it's never received a dub. Yet there are people who don't watch subtitle movies that will have watched this. They would normally have watched this yeah. and Oh Boy. They'll be like the two su- sure. subtitle movies that they make the exception for. And it was just it was just astounding the fact that I thought when I was first came across this. I mean, I said when this my first sort of introduction to this was through Billy Chainsaw for a Bizarre magazine, and it was doing the rounds. I think it was like going around the film festivals or or something, and just basically tartan media who brought it over to the UK and this was like one of their big launch titles for the Asian Extreme title and it was sort of like you know there's all these sort of whispers of what this film is it's like all oh, these like kids they get sent to this island they have to kill each other and it's like that sounds incredible and then you see like, right. these images coming across and um being in Bizarre they had these like hokey little taglines like we got the scene with all the girls who've like shot themselves in the kitchen it's like oh the synchronized suicide squad training wasn't going well and that just made me want to see this even more. Just like all these like fantastic images and this film, as we'll obviously get into it later, there's so many shots you can take from this film and they just make like perfect selling points to this yeah. movie. It's sort of like, sure. I want to see the girl in the, in the uh, school uniform in the rain with the gun. I want to see like this guy with the bandana and the shotgun. It's sort of like all these little scenes that just made this sort of stand out for more than just your standard sort of like uh, like with a lot of the extreme cinema, it was just all about the sort of like shock. There seems to be something a little deeper with this film. Well, and because it's kids, I think. I mean, you've had movies like it one way or another, as far as you've had many a most dangerous game telling. But and it's why you will never have an American remake. They constantly try. Every couple of years, it circulates of like, okay, we're moving forward, and then a school shooting happens, yeah. and. It's immediately, no, no, nobody can ever see that. And I think that's the other big thing about Battle Royale is that they're teenagers. They are ki- They are 14 or 15 years old. And that, and it being on such an epic scale where you see 40 or, what, 38 teenagers die in this, in very brutal, very often creative ways, it is something that you, you know, we... You can say Hunger Games kind of, you know, is a similar thing in many ways, but isn't. There is nothing like Battle Royale. No, I think certainly you hit on the head there. I think when it comes to comes to Battle Royale, when we've obviously had other pictures like Deadliest Game, uh, Turkey Shoots, with adults sort of hunting other adults. We've had adults fighting kids with, with things such as like the mm-hmm. children and can you kill a child. Sure. Um, but yeah, this is, as I said, the first time let's pick children against children and, and yeah. see what happens. It's <laughs> magic. Magic, indeed. Um, but when it comes to, I mean, the Asian cinema, is it sort of just sort of horror cinema that you tend to look at when you come to Asian cinema? Or 
you sort of like dipping in and out of the genres? Where do you sort of interest lie when it comes to Asian cinema? Yeah, I think for me, I mean, I for me, I'll, any nation I'll watch horror from. So that includes, you know, Korea or Thailand or anything. Uh, with if for me in general, I'm not one to often say to myself, oh, let me watch a comedy. Mm. So it wouldn't matter much whether it was a Japanese comedy or an American comedy. It's just not something I gravitate towards often. But typically, anything that sounds interesting to me, I'll watch. Uh, and, you know, with you know, the wonderful age we live in now, with Netflix and so on, there's a lot of cool stuff out there. And I think that's as much as Netflix has been kind of problematic in a lot of ways lately, one thing they've done well is they really have added a lot more foreign titles and movies that I think otherwise nobody ever would have heard of or thought to watch just kind of pop up in front of you and it sounds interesting enough and you watch it. And that includes, I think, comedies and sci-fi and some random things. So. Um, I will just post it to you both and see do anything. I mean, knowing you're over there, but do you think we're entering into a second boom for Asian sort of cinema and culture? Because, as you said already, Netflix are picking up a lot of stuff. Amazon is certainly picking up um, a lot of titles. And we're seeing a real sort of interest in foreign cinema, especially in foreign TV dramas. They're all being sort of picked up, um, especially mm-hmm. in the UK. So it feels like we're almost entering this sort of second second boom of interest. And just everywhere I look, there just seems to be more and more different platforms like coming up. I mean, that's if you love one animation, you click Crunchyroll and Funimation. Uh, if you just want to watch like TV dramas now, there's there's like hundreds on Netflix, and it's like, where are they all coming from, um, and who yeah. is showing this sort of interest? Because I remember when I got Netflix, there was six Asian titles on there, and that was it. And now there's like, hmm. now they seem to be like there's sections, yeah, yeah, they're backing their own their own uh, imports and stuff. So I mean, Stephen, do you think this is a new boom we're in, or? Is it just sort of like uh, the way the tide's turning at the moment? I, I think I think I sort of see it in two different ways. Um, in terms of sort of Japanese culture, um, in, in sort of the the anime, the manga, I think that's just been an upward trajectory for twenty twenty five years. Yeah, that's just a constant um upward trajectory and now that those people that had it when they were growing up are now grown-ups and they're in charge of the programming and what's available um you look at things like marvel comics are intensely um inspired by the the manga of of 20 years ago in regards to sort of cinema and other entertainment i think we are seeing like um so we sometimes we sometimes talk about like the the hallyu wave of um, interest in korean entertainment which happened at the beginning of the 2000s which all got wrapped up into this whole j horror thing at the same time but it's why things like my sassy girl became really um popular all over the world i think we're seeing it again which the, that but rather than being led maybe by cinema it's being led certainly by tv and mm-hmm. drama and it's being led by music and k-pop and they are becoming almost ubiquitous <laughs> yeah they, they they are becoming entrenched as part of western culture to all sorts of ages but in that regard, I see that as a second way round. We've been here before. We were here 20 years ago. And for some reason, things like, I don't know, is it BTS, bands like that, um, the most recent dramas, assisted by all these new platforms that you were talking about, all these new streaming platforms and then more mainstream places like Netflix saying, hey, I want a bit of that. Yeah. And that populates it even more. Yeah, it's it's kind of awesome. Like I have, you know, nieces and nephews who are, you know, 13 and so on. 
And they know things that I wouldn't have known at that age as far as international entertainment. Like, there are 15-year-olds who listen to Super Junior and all these Korean bands. And because, and this, and there are good and bad things about this, the, the way entertainment is now where it's so niche and so, you you know, you can, your algorithm is going to plug in to only show you movies about talking animals or whatever it is that you've started watching. It, the bad thing is you don't get that water cooler mass discussion anymore. But the good thing is it does give you exposure. And I think younger people now are growing up with a more global view. And in some ways, when you have that with entertainment, like I think watching a television show made for another country is one of the most interesting things because it's the little parts of it, like looking at the kitchen of somebody in Brazil and realizing how different houses are in Brazil. Like those little things, I think, kind of go a long way in stretching out our understanding of, of what the world is as Americans or Englishmen. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's exactly why I love not just Asian cinema, but world cinema. It isn't necessarily about seeing something more extreme or more different, but it's just like interfacing to another culture. Yeah. Seeing, like, just as you say, look at the different food they're eating. Look at the different yep. way they live. Look at the different way their families interact. Um, look at the difference in the roads. And then, and that, <laughs> that inspired me not only, you know, just to enjoy it through cinema, but actually go traveling and understand. And it gives me a wider understanding of the yeah. world. Instead of being this strange and crazy place where there's lots of boobs on TV and subtitles, they're real places with, with three-dimensional depth up and up and down the whole spectrum. Yeah, very cool. I'm just seeing, like, a complete sh- shift in... Whereas before you were... If you said you're into, into like, foreign cinema, uh, people thought that you were trying to be an intellect, and which certainly wasn't the case myself. Or especially if you're like into if you were into anime though, you were seen as like a pervert because anime right. was just seen was discredited in America, I believe you call it J um Japanimation. Whereas we Japanimation. Were... Well I was gonna say when you say anime, a lot of people <laughs> just immediately go to hentai. Yeah, that's the thing. Everyone thinks you're just watching like demon porn right. and whatnot and it's like, no, yep. anime goes so much deeper and now we're actually seeing this breadth of anime titles that are coming across. Um that, uh, as I said, I mean, it's now we're at the point where it's hard to watch everything. You have to basically say, um, this is my show and I'm going to stick with it and, you know, stick with it for like 300 episodes, as is the case of myself and Dragon Ball, where I'm 20 episodes into a 232 episode slog. But we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. On to tonight's, uh, obviously, main feature. We're talking, obviously, about Battle Royale, uh, released in 2000. And this is a film which is probably one of the best known films by its director. Um, if you're obviously not familiar with uh, the work of uh, Kinchi Fukasaku, uh, you would be forgiven because while obviously Battle Royale came over and she had huge acclaim, his other films have never really had the distribution, especially over here in the UK. Only recently have we seen Battles About Honor and Humanity receiving a very nice box set from Arrow, which promptly sold out and then went for extraordinary prices on eBay. So God bless the streaming services once again for saving us from the trader prices. Now, the film itself is set at the dawn of the millennium, and Japan as a nation has basically collapsed, and unemployment's on the rise. The youth are boycotting the school system, and the government have decided the way they're going to deal with this 
is they're going to pass the Millennial Education Reform Act, also known as the BR Act. And each year, a class is chosen by lottery and they're placed on a deserted island and they're basically given three days to battle amongst themselves until one student remains. And that survival will be used as an example of the lengths the government are willing to go to to maintain order in the nation. Mirroring in many ways the current climate of Japan, where youth culture is being seen as almost a, a criminal element in itself where high pressures to succeed are causing youngsters to rebel. The film draws many sort of elements both from the director's life as well as the current state of Japan and obviously being based on one of the more controversial titles uh, to come out of Japan as well. The film itself uh, came out to a huge success as we mentioned already. It's been adapted into both a manga. The original source novel has also been adapted. It's really become this sort of cult thing that's uh, never sort of lost its interest and it's a lure since it's come out. But what is it about Battle Royale that appeals to you both? I mean, is it just, as I said, just this unique concept or is it there's something sort of deeper that sort of like makes you want to return to Battle Royale like of past that sort of like initial viewing a few things for me i would say i'm i love a hunting human like kind of most dangerous game ish story i just yeah. it always works for me i'm always interested by it and you you get that obviously to the max i read the book um maybe about 10 years ago i had seen the movie by the time i read the book and the book is interesting because the something the book does um is that it's an alternate uh alternate history so in the book, Japan has won World War II, and so it's a much more police state for all those years. And so there's different – and some of those aspects don't – they're just not in the movie. And I think um, it's fine because I think it works better. I think this is one of those really good adaptations where um, the writer-director changes what he needs to change to have it work on screen. I don't think it's a perfect movie by any means. It's – bloated would be kind of the thing that I want to work for me, but I know really doesn't. And it works for me probably better than other people are the, you know, all the basketball scenes oh, <laughs> and all the kind of, it just, it just gets so they just keep repeating and it just, and like you have like, like that Lord of the Rings return of the King ending that just keeps going. But then if you watch the cut, the more edited version without that, it, I don't think it works. I think when they end it without the 12 endings, it really lacks something. So it's not a perfect movie by any means, but the setup is so great for me. And you have a couple of little things that really sell it. And, and Takashi Kitano is just so much fun. And that is a character that is vastly different than, than in the novel. And I think that was just, um, I think the director told Kitano just, do whatever. I trust you. Go with it. I just want you to be you. And it works because it's just such a weird performance and a weird character that somehow fits in with all of the, this teenage chaos going around him. And you get just some fantastic action, violent sequences. Uh, there's a lot about it I really love. Pete Takashi Takano, absolute legend of uh, Japanese cinema. I mean, he's only made one cinema uh sorry one film uh with a uh, in the west and that was uh the film for production brother uh which i liked but i know that it got pretty mold and to kind of really didn't enjoy working uh with the western director basically went went home after that uh to you know just enjoy being a legend of the years over there i mean he's yeah he's got his own game show takeshi's castle which is 
I've only ever seen one person ever win, and they won't win. I think you win a gift token. <laughs> but you have to like go through like twelve rounds where you're just going basically like maiming yourself to uh to get to the end of this. But yeah, basically, I mean, when it came to his performance, he was just basically told act yourself, and he's like, "What do you mean, act myself?" Um, <laughs> but it works. Paint your own picture as well. Mm. Stephen, what uh, about yourself? What's the allure of uh, Battle Royale for yourself? You see, it's really funny because I have opposite opinion to Emily on this. So I also read the novel afterwards, and I was I was enamoured by the setup, by the by the alternate. I'm a sucker for alternate histories, as I've probably mentioned before. So I was a sucker for that, and I felt this worked in that context by taking it out. The one thing, there's two things I don't like about this film. One is, I think the setup is really clunky. It doesn't make any sense. I see no evidence of children running riot. I see, I don't understand why they don't know what's going on because it's clearly a television phenomenon. So I just don't understand why everyone's shocked about it. So that, and that takes it out of me. However, the point it changes is when they bring on that perky girl in the video mm-hmm. and, 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 her. and, and, and just the incongruity of the whole thing. And then suddenly I'm thinking, OK, I'm, I'm somewhere else. This is I'm just going to run with it from now on. And then you just get, you know, it's really imaginative. And like, I think, again, as Emily said earlier, some really interesting and fun kills um, working within the the rules of of this game the other bit i don't get and i think works better in the in the book is the relationship between katano's character and i'm going to try and remember her name noriko noriko which is just freaking weird in (laughs) the way it's executed with shared dreams and 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 I get I get where they're coming from is that he, she was always the good girl and she's better than his daughter and 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 that kind of thing. But it just doesn't make any blooming sense to me. <laughs> and 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 it's all part of like you did mention about in the, in the long cut. There's like there is about thirteen different endings. It does seem to keep yeah. on going, doesn't it? And there's, and I think some of it is wrapping up that story. But I just didn't think it was successfully done, and I didn't think it was even necessary. But the guts of the film, the main bit of the film. It's hugely entertaining. It's funny. It's sad. It spends time on certain characters and makes you. Um, there's a bit the the character played by Ku Shibiaski, Mitsuko, who's like the bad girl. Yeah, oh, and, I love her. <laughs> and in in the novel, you see much more of her story, and she makes much more sense as as the novel plays out. Yeah, but here she just seems to be a bit of a bitch until. One seat, one moment before she's killed, you find out exactly why she mm-hmm. is, and suddenly she becomes a sympathetic character. And it's things like that in this film that, that whilst it should just be a, a silly, quite single-level movie, you know, it's just naughty kids killing each other. Um, there's a there's there's more going on here, and actually that's why I went to discover the novel and some of the manga, believe it or not, adaptations mm. to try and understand more about these characters. I was intrigued. Oh yeah, the, the the manga certainly takes the material in a different direction than the novel. The novel is like this perfectly good uh, novel, but with the film, it's almost like elevated to high art. I mean, the way that multiple yeah. storylines are tied together. I mean, we have forty-two students to begin with, which is just absolutely staggering. For if you just try and think of that on a screenwriting basis to try and craft. 42 individual characters that all don't sound the same. And yes, I mean, most of them are just basically cannon fodder or they choose to opt out the game early, which 
you know, it's all the sort of things that sort of ire censors and the fact of children hanging themselves or throwing themselves off cliffs because they're not going to participate in this battle royale isn't going to go down well. And I think any time you involve children and put them in this sort of situation is going to upset somebody. Yet, I never felt it was sort of like gratuitous. It's not there for, like, yeah. shocking for the sake of being shocking. And I think it's, as you mentioned already, doing the fact we've got people like uh, Mitsuku, who, if you watch the the extended edition where we actually get to see her, her backstory with the, uh, mm-hmm. the creepy pervert and the yeah. alcoholic mother, as a lot more and, yeah, and her mother, who essentially is willing to sell her to somebody like that. Oh, yeah. Her mother's pimping her out to this yeah. really creepy guy. And I, I mean, last night was the first time I'd ever watched the extended cut. For whatever oh, reason, oh. I've just forever watched my, like, battered VHS uh, copy <laughs> that with all those uh, classic King cuts from Tarzan. Bit of nostalgia there for myself. But, yeah, last night I, I finally uh, opened the steelbook and, like, watched the extended nice. one. And I knew about the basketball scenes, but I completely didn't know about the Mitsuku scene. <laughs> so many of those basketball scenes. And it's all like, we were having... Part two, it's so many rugby scenes. <laughs> and you're sort of like, what? And the way it's introduced, it's all like, oh, back, we were happy. And it's all like, goes against this fact that these children are supposed to be like running wild and this well, is the reason uh, we're doing this. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. That whole, that whole, all those basketball scenes, all that leads me to believe is that there's a real sense of school spirit and they're all playing with it, you know, and they're all working with each other. And and um, Shuya's upset that he can't play basketball anymore, even though the subtitles in my copy say he's upset about not being able to play baseball anymore. But I'm going to let that <laughs> off as a, as a typo. Because even well, I know you have the, the bad subtitled edition where when um, Mitsuko dies, it says Mitsuko dead? Question <laughs> mark. <laughs> no, <laughs> that sounds genius. That's out there. I think it might actually be the DVD because I have the deluxe edition now, but I think like the old DVD I had, just it ha- like the subtitles are terrible and it and it really hurts the fit. It's like when Let the Right Winning first came out on DVD. And just the subtitles were written so terribly. And it was that great example of like, oh, there is an art to this and you did not do it well. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to tell you what version I've got because I would have get jealous and start saying Which bloody you got? arrow again. You got the arrow. I've got the arrow. I've got the this. arrow big box set with. Oh, right. Well, so you yeah, can't be angry. You know, for one side, you have like one of these sets that you like mysteriously pick up for like pennies. <laughs> Because, like, some girlfriend's got angry at her boyfriend has decided to sell his collection. (laughs) That's what it's for, sir. With the teenagers, I think there is, and yeah, I don't think it's done, and I've watched this movie a lot, so it may just be that having watched it a lot, I have been able to fill in some of the gaps in my mind. But to me, what the story is saying, and it's also maybe in part because I'm coupling it with Battle Royale 2, which is a mess and other things, but... I think, and where the book, it's very much, this is a police state. This is dangerous. Um, the Anybody that doesn't support the Battle Royale program, like their teacher and like parents are murdered or raped and murdered. Like it's a vicious thing. Whereas in the film, I think it's really treated as the economy is in the can and kids are acting out. And you do see that in the very beginning when Shuya's friend stabs the teacher and runs away and Shuya whose dad has killed himself because he lost his job. And so there is as much as like, yeah, these kids seem to have each other for the most part. It seems very much like they have each other, but, but nothing else. The school system is failing them because it's, you know, and it's, this is true of, I mean, Japanese and Korean schools where 
it's treated very much of you have 40 kids in a class and you don't have that same teacher-student relationship that you have in, I guess, Western culture. And so I think, again, I'm defending it because I've seen it so many times that in my mind, I know exactly what this case of Japan is at, at the start of this movie. But it, it's fair that it's it's not done that well. It's just if you if you decide this, it does work, I think. Oh, and I, I also think for the for the home audience, for the Japanese audience in the year 2000, it probably makes a huge amount of sense sure. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's only us sort of looking at it through a layer of culture and geography yep. that, that for, for me makes it a bit like it's a bit clumsy. But sure. hey, perky girl, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> well. Fukusaku's, I mean, he stated the reason he chose to direct the film is that it reminds him of a time when he was a 15-year-old and he was working, his class was sent to work in a munitions factory during during World War II. And one day, uh, the factory came under artillery fire and children couldn't escape, so they basically dived under each other. And then the once the attack was over, the surviving members of the class had to dispose of the corpses. And it was at that point he realised the Japanese government was lying about World War II and he developed a burning hatred of adults and in general, and that's basically this distrust of government that really inspired mm-hmm. him to make this film. And you can see it, especially yeah. when we get into Barrel 2, which his son took over. His son obviously wrote the screenplay for both films. And uh, yeah, I think it was always going to be a problematic film to follow up, not only just because of what this film was, but just the, the amount of... Uh, as I said, the amount of personal politics that were put into that film. And I, I mean, I like Battle Royale 2. I just think it's got a clumsy mm-hmm. third act. Yeah, I think with Battle Royale 2, the problem, because I think, I agree, I think there's actually some really good things going on in there. And I think the idea behind it of there's, to me, what I see is a clear sort of statement on um, on the military, on sending young people, typically young men, but young people, into fight wars that they have no reason for themselves fighting. Mm. So, you you know, you have, you send 18-year-olds to Iraq or to Afghanistan to die and to kill, and it's the people making that decision are so far removed from the conflict and are, you know, and the and it's, I think it's a really interesting theme and kind of metaphor. The problem with Battle Royale, too, is it's just so both heavy-handed but also vague it's like a war on adults well it's very children of the corn ask what's gonna happen you're gonna become an adult soon how does that work so it's problematic but i but i think like there is a um like a good intention behind it and there's some great uh great battle scenes too yeah well i mean we've obviously got the the war against government that's one of the underlying plots in this film is we've obviously got the hacker student whose uncle is a revolutionary soldier. And, you know, depending on which version you're watching, he's off fighting a conflict or he's dead. It's, it's a bit mismatch. I mean, the original, the original version I had for this, some bright spark decided to use white subtitles, uh, which means they fade into the background of a number of scenes. So I was really happy. My old DVD had the gigantic yellow ones that just looked really ugly and were very distracting when you were trying to watch the movie. Yeah. Um, how do we, I mean, obviously there's numerous subplots going in here. Do we have a favorite sort of subplot that's going on here? Because obviously we've got, we've got our main sort of uh, characters, uh, Shuyu and Noriko. And Shuyu's interesting because, I mean, he's a pacifist. The only time he kills someone is at the end. He kills, um, 
Catano. Catano. Not sure why I couldn't remember that. Um, <laughs> every, and it only dawned on me like yesterday when I was watching because I thought, well, no, he kills like a couple of other people, but no, everyone else he kills is like by accident. Like the guy with the, who gets the axe to the head is because it deflects off his pan lid. Oh, and, totally, yeah. Uh, the rest of the time, he's just running away <laughs> and with confidence from people or stumbling into situations where other people just... Their plans to survive this game are falling apart rather rapidly and they just turn on each other, as we see, obviously, in the case of the, the girls in the lighthouse. Um, but, I mean, do you we have a favourite sort of subplot or a favourite sort of character that, that, we, uh, that we follow in this film? Um, I, I mean, how can you not like, uh, I guess, Kazuo Kiriyama, just the psycho, because he's so (laughs) terrifying. And it's okay, and again, it works fine in the movie of just, oh yeah, he's done this before, he just really likes doing it, so he came back. Uh, in the book, that character is very different and really interesting. He's not a transfer student, he's one of the kids in class, but he is a sociopath, but he's brilliant. And it's like some, I forget like the thing, but like he had like a crazy head injury that just made him lose a conscience. And when um, it's almost like No Country for Old Men-esque where he like flips coins at times to decide things. Um, So like in the book, he's even cooler, but on screen, he's just so terrifying that it's just one of those like, yeah, that guy. Stephen? Um, I I think I've already said you know I do love Mitsuko. I think I, just, <laughs> oh, God, yes. I think I think she's brilliant. Again, in the book, it, it's even it's even better. Um, I did like bits of um Shogo, the other transfer. Oh, student, yeah, he's great. Uh, only because of laconic style, but also the oh yep. yeah. Didn't I say my dad was a chef? Yeah. Or, or my dad <laughs> my was dad a sailor? Oh, my dad was a doctor. Yeah, that's right. Every every time we see him, his dad was something else. And that adds a bit of levity to the... When you first hear it, you think, oh, right, his dad was a doctor. But then he sort of replays it again and again, and he's fabulous. But my favourite thing about the whole film is the lighthouse scene. And it's my favourite scene in the book as well. It's much longer in the book, isn't it? It's a, it's a whole section, I think, if I remember rightly. And I, th- I think it's done a bit quickly, but I, I just I just love it the way they've got like this um, almost Lord of the Flies thing going on, isn't there, inside this lighthouse with just the girls. And then he's trapped there in a in a almost um, beguiled style in the in the room. Well, yeah, well, yeah. well, it all decays. His introduction <laughs> just brings them to pieces and it ends up on a wonderful bloodshed. It's only about 10 minutes in the film, but I could watch that. Again and again, I think that's brilliantly executed. Oh, the scene where it all goes to part and they just all start pulling guns at each other. Just the the, the gun choreography in that sequence is really cool to see. Um, although I have to say that bullets don't seem to work like they would in reality in this film. I mean, you can probably, depending on who you are, you can be shot like multiple times and just still keep going because you haven't quite perfected that death arc. Um, <laughs> well... Along those lines is uh, Katano's death scene, which I just adore when he gets shot and then he just stands back up and answers the phone and gets his cookies. And <laughs> it's like, that, that's, if I ever get shot, that's how I want to go. I love the face just lying on the couch eating cookies while these kids are out there killing each other. Yeah. Um, and the, when the when the, the sergeant like comes over and tries to take a cook and he just snatches them away, he's like, no, my cookies. Um, yes. But I mean, this is just the genius uh, of Katano. He's just uh, he can do so much with so little. That man. Yeah, yeah. He's a presence. He's not. Definitely. He's not big on like facial expressions, but I don't know. The, he's just like he's like what Ric Flair is to wrestling. He it shouldn't make sense, <laughs> but he just works. 
just works. Green yeah. player's like a 50-year-old goober who just shouts woo a lot, and he's, he's like the greatest thing. Um, I mean, just talking about Guada, I mean, Guada's got this real sort of mentality. He's like a Vietnam vet. He's got about 1,000-yard stare, and, you know, you know he's seen some shit. Yep. Um, and I love the fact that he's, he's quite willing to play the game on his own terms. Like, he gets given one of the bags, and he's like, comes back, and he's like, no, that's not my bag. And he just takes another bag, because obviously he's got a crummy weapon or something. So. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I enjoy him as the sort of when he's when he has to make those decisions of do I help these people or not I don't know these kids I'm I'm ultimately gonna have to kill them all right fine I'll help her and there, there's just something very much like a journey to that character that I I enjoy and I think the actor sells it well hmm. also to go back to uh Steven's favorite character Mitsuko someone who always got with her character is the fact that she was always like the underdog of her little social group. She's like in with like the popular girls. She's uh, basically like what Hannah is in in uh, Pretty Little Life. She's like the underdog. She's the bottom peg, bottom post of this totem pole. And the fact that she's now been given a chance to sort of strike back at these mm-hmm. girls and then basically realizes, you know what, I'm just going to take out everyone because, you know, that's just the way I'm going to work. Um, yep. Do you feel that even, I mean, taking away her abuse past and sort of thing, do we feel that she's in many ways sort of like a sympathetic character? Because certainly when she dies, and we've obviously got uh, Box Air plays over her death scene, that she's just like, oh, I just didn't want to be a loser. Uh, is she sort of like a very sort of tragic character ultimately, or is she sort of like just this psychopath that we can somehow sort of associate with? Like, they all have to fight for their lives. Like, there's something to the fact that if they don't fight, if they don't try to kill, then they're going to die. So I, the, that she immediately says, okay, I know how to do this. I am, and I'm going to use every trick in my book. I'm going to play a nice girl or flirt or whatever I have to do that. I think you just start to root for her because she's so good at it. And there's something that you just respect about it. Like any villain where when you're watching them be good at being a villain that when she gets shot, like I am sad because I, Oh man, like I, you know, if somebody had to win by doing being terrible, I want it to be her. Yeah, I, I mean it's hard because I think I've probably only watched the um, uh, extended version more recently, um, and obviously reading the no- reading the novel. I'm not sure I can remember what it, she was like when she was a bit more one note. Um, one of the things that struck me last night in in one of these interminable basketball scenes is that there's a big <laughs> celebration when they win. And the camera just pauses on her a second. She's not part of the celebration. She's there, but she's she's kind of just not part of it. And again, the film tries really hard with that and with the flashback to her to her past to make her sympathetic. And I don't know now, sitting here in 2019, if I was sympathetic towards her when I first saw the film, which definitely wasn't the extended version. And and so my my memories of it are, are confused. I'm also kind of sold on the character because Kushibi Asaki is, is, you know, is, is a proper actress who's had a proper career in cinema and all sorts after this movie and probably before as well. So she is one of the three familiar, well, four, I guess we include Katano, yeah. one of the four familiar play, faces to me. So I'm kind of drawn towards her because I know her. <laughs> because because <laughs> I know the act not literally know her but you know I I know the actress and and her as a bad girl is a really rare thing so hmm, um interesting. so I wonder if that but again that's post film knowledge 
<laughs> it's 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 what am I bringing it to it today that I didn't bring to it then, which is um, now worrying me. Yeah. Well, the the basketball scene I think is is really touching to me because she's there and she's watching it and she's into it, like she's happy when they win, but she has nobody to sell. Nobody thinks to celebrate with her and vice versa. So it's this like clear kind of sadness of oh she she does want to fit in. She wants to be friends with these kids. But probably because she has probably built walls up around her for good reason, based on her, if you've seen the full version of what she went through as a kid and probably a young woman, that she doesn't have the ability to connect to these other kids. So there, I don't, I, I think that that moment, I think, really elevates that character and does make that sadder because you can just see she wasn't a one note evil murderer. She just didn't fit in. And fought to survive and, and ultimately lost. And it's sad. Now I'm very sad for Mitsuko. Yeah. I mean, in the book and the, uh, in the anime, she's a much less sympathetic character, I think, mainly because they really go into her extracurricular activities, should we say. In particular, she's list, she creates like false rape claims against one of the teachers she dislikes, so he's fired. She makes a habit of drugging and robbing men, in particular a boxer who threatens to sue her. So in return, she retaliates with, well, you had sex with a 15-year-old, and this causes him to drive off the cliff. Oh, yeah. Um, I forgot about all that. So, yeah, she's... And, I mean, in the book, I believe it is, before she kills Yuriko, she um, she actually rapes him. So she wounds him and then forces him to have sex with her, so he dies of his injuries. So she's got some real sort of nasty qualities, which are... I think wisely edited out for the film because I think when it comes to like a book and suddenly a manga, um, there's certain things you're willing to accept in these sort of like overblown uh, sort of characters. And especially with the book being as pulpy as it is, you you kind of get a bit more freedom. But with the film, it's sort of a lot more grounded and by removing these elements and just by keeping it as that one sort of trigger moment where she's sort of abused as a child. Um, and having these other little hints dropped throughout, I think it just makes it a much stronger character. And I think we probably would be taught looking at her a bit differently. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a number of characters that, you know, it's they seem so nice, and then you discover their their darker side, like Chickasaw. Um, who's, I mean, she all the time, she's supposed to be, like, you know, fighting for her life, but, you know, she's still carrying on with her running training <laughs> in that lovely yellow jumpsuit. <laughs> I mean, why not? You know, like, what else are you going to do? It's a beautiful island. I mean, why? I, hey, I travel. When I travel, I like to go running in new places. I'd probably be like, well, if I'm going to die, at least I'm going to get a good run in. That's exactly my thought whenever I'm posed with these situations, of course. But, I mean, it did obviously, this her role in this film did obviously lead to her being cast as Gogo in Kill Bill. Yeah. Uh, Which I think was supposed to be the actress who played Mitsuko. I think that's who Quentin Tarantino went to first because he wanted... I mean, that character is closer to Gogo in terms of kind of yeah. the bloodthirst. But I think she either, I don't know if she declined it or what. So, I mean, the, and the actress is so good in Kill Bill that it doesn't matter. But that's one thing that always bothers me is whenever people like say like, oh, yeah, you know, she's playing the same character as she does in Battle Royale. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's a different character. Like, if it was the actress who played Mitsuko in Kill Bill, I could accept that. But no, it just happens. She also is an Asian school playing wearing a schoolgirl outfit yeah um certainly tarantino's proclaimed that battle royale is the greatest film of the last two decades uh, i mean yeah 
And uh, yeah, I mean, the character of Gogo, I mean, he created specifically. I thought it was he created it originally for uh, Shibuyaski. Um, sorry, um, you know, my character's computer here. Um, for Chike Kuriyama. Uh, but obviously, I've been pretty wrong. I know he has a life size wax worker in the. Uh, Paris Gogo in his house. I mean, she is a, a strikingly unusual-looking woman, isn't she? Yeah. She I mean, is. she's a, she, she's a model in Japan, and she's in various TV shows and things like that. But she is, she is, you know, this is going to come out the wrong way. But you know, a lot, a lot, of, you know, in a, in a film where lots of people are wearing the same outfits and they're all sure. about fifteen years old. Um, it would be, you know, very easy for them all to look very similar. And sure. one of the things the film does is actually manages through their personality to make them all a bit different. But she is just unique. I don't know anybody yeah. else who looks like Chiaki Kuriyama. No, um, she does. So she no, has a, a very, very distinct, it's her, the shape of her face and kind of the fact that she's so tall that you're right. She is a memorable presence. And And so I can see why. You know, she's one of the characters you remember from Kill Bill, and then that links to, to to Battle Royale. So I think the two films are are linked. But it was very interesting what you said that actually Tarantino originally wanted Kushibisaki because um, it would take her years to get into a Western film, and then it was shit like the Keanu Reeves Forty Seven Ronin, um, which is a bit of a shame all round, really. Fair enough. Um, we're running out of time quickly soon. I think we only got you for about another five minutes. Am I right in saying? Just about. Yes. Okay. Um. So, I mean, is there anything else that sort of like stands out this film that we haven't discussed already? I mean, we've obviously talked a lot about the violence and the various sort of uh, colourful characters here. I mean, as I said, this is a standing piece of work. I mean, you can dismiss it on its sort of gratuitous nature. I mean, the fact that it's, as I said, you know, it's kill, it's killing kids, but you know, name another film which manages to take 42 characters to make them all stand out and recognisable from each other. Uh, even if they're only given like a couple of minutes of screen time, you seem you still feel yep. like you know each of these kids in this class. I think a fun game I might play with myself um, today is thinking, trying to count of, can I count what happens to all 42? Even if I don't know their names, if I don't, you know, at first glance remember who was who, I bet if I actually have a poster of Battle Royale hanging up in my, in my apartment, I bet if I looked at that and went through, I could say, all right, that's the kid who, uh, it's the chubby kid that he's the first one to die and he, it's an accident. And then these are the two that commit suicide together on the rock. And then this, like, I think I could come up with all 42 deaths, uh, because they are memorable. And I actually like that nothing really happens as much as obviously some have are bigger scenes than others. Nothing happens off screen. Everything is there for you and you get that count. And so there is this constant sense of, oh, how many are left with this? And that's just, again, it's a trick of a lot of these movies, but it it works and it just makes it um, such a great package of a movie. Steven, is there anything else that you want to say about this one? No, I don't, I don't think so. I just think it's a worthy addition for our 25th film. Um and and everything we've already said, you know, it, it transcends being a Japanese film. It's part of the culture. Heck, young people, Fortnite Battle Royale. That's where it gets its name from, guys. <laughs> it's a really fun game to play, too. Like, 
if you're ever in your office, let's say, or on the subway, like just imagine if at any point lights came on and suddenly the doors were locked and you were told, hey, battle royale situation, last man standing. And like you just look and I've done this like when I was teaching, I would do this thinking in my head, like with my students when I've been in at work, I, I every now and then when you get bored, you're like, OK, what's my plan? Um, who's, who's going to go first, who's going to last. And I, I know what my plan is. I'm a freaking coward. My plan is simply identify who I think would be the strongest one and just shadow that person the entire time and wait for them to knock out most of the competition and then sneak up and kill them. That's how I figured out how I'd do it, which is what a character tries to do in the book, but fails. Um, but it's a good plan, I think. Cool. Um, further watching and where do you go if you like, by the way, I mean, it's a, Difficult film to stick just purely within terms of Asian cinema. I can think of many sort of Western uh, examples, such as, like, as you said already, when she would describe your little scenario there, my mind instantly went to the Belko experiment. Oh, yeah, uh, very much. So I can think of I can think of several films that uh, you would go to outside this. I mean, it's already, you know, Turkey Shoot, Deadliest Game. You, oh, yeah. You can just sort of reel off uh, them. Um, but, uh, I mean, there's that, that very sort of popular young adult series that uh, ripped it off. It didn't. Uh, Susan Collins had no idea that this was... I really think she Really? The most popular Japanese movie of all time? She's an American YA writer. She's not paying attention to Japanese, you know, genre cinema. I really do think it was just purely like a weird coincidence. Because that does happen. And I think she has since said, oh, wow, yeah, that's really similar. And... It's, I'm also somebody that likes the Hunger Games, both the books and the films. I, I mean, they're flawed. They're not Battle Royale. I, they don't try to be. I really do think it's it was a coincidence. But yes, when you then look at the film, sure, there's a, there's a parallel, and it's a good like. I'm excited. So I have I have nieces who've read the Hunger Games and watched it. I can't wait for them to be a little older when I can be like. So you like the Hunger Games, huh? Hey, you want to check out something cooler and <laughs> give them Battle Royale? Yeah, I liked um, I liked the first Hunger Games book, and then when we got to second, I realized I've been sold the same book again. Not so much. I mean, you know what they call the Hunger Games in Paris, don't you, Emily? I do not. Battle Royale with cheese. Ah, <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Stephen, is there? Anything? Oh, we're doing dad jokes now. Aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> <Hey>. Why not? <laughs> I've got an excuse to do them. <laughs> um, own it yeah definitely Stephen uh, I mean is there, if someone asked you to pair some of this film I mean can you think of something or, or is, it, is it like myself and you're just going to sort of western examples here no I've got one yay um, <laughs> this is why you're the professor <laughs> it's not it's not um, it's not exactly the same obviously um, but if you want a film where lots of schoolgirls die please check out Sion Sono's tag. Oh, yes! <laughs> sometimes called um, uh, The Chasing World, because it's a remake of a, of a previous film called The Chasing World, um, which is a little bit more high concept. I have incredible problems with its message, um, <laughs> which is where it's trying to be a critique of a certain film and ends up being exactly the worst excess of upskirt and all the things it's trying to have a have a go at however i think it is a good modern match to battle royale i'd agree yeah 
I'll throw out a few other titles that just are a little maybe less known. Um, These are American films, but again, like it's a similar similar conceptual stuff, but different setups. Circle, which I think is like Tag, I think is also streaming on Netflix now, which is just sort of a weird bunch of people stuck in a room and there's yeah yeah every two minutes somebody dies and you get to choose who that is. It's just a it's and it's like ninety minutes. It's it's like a very quick kind of high concept, interesting strangers deciding each other's fate thing. Yeah, it's uh, super simple, isn't it? It's sort of just in terms of just a real high concept idea. Very much, and just a simple production design, but it works. And then one other film that um, was in, like a really low-budget independent film that I think does it is really smart and really great, and not many people really seem to talk about it because I don't think it ever ended up on a streaming service. It's called The Human Race. Um, yeah. And what it is, is a bunch of random people are sort of thrown together in this situation where they're told, uh, and I, I can't remember if it's like aliens or exactly like if you know what the setup is, but basically it's people of, of varying sorts, um, including one man who has one leg. And they're told, hey, it's a race. Just You just have to start going. And if you get passed by somebody, you're going to die. And it kind of is a similar like collar on the face kind of head pop type thing but it's just it's a it's well done for its very small budget and it pulls a lot of the same kind of ideas i think as battle royale but in a really unique way and just it not many people have seen it so it's, it's a recommend from me apparently made on the budget of a mid-sized car so. <laughs> there you go um yeah human race by paul who 2012 that looks pretty cool yeah, I mean, as I said, I'm just trying. To, every time I, I'm, you know, just like making me think of like Punishment Park and. Oh yes. Which would be it's, it's a, uh, a very good reference and one that everybody should see if they haven't already. Yeah. Um, it's like the original sort of. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, Emily, it's been an absolute yes. pleasure having you uh, on the it show. Happened. Thank you for coming and talking about Barrow. Um, before we obviously say goodbye to you for this uh, show, um, do you want to just quickly? run through where people can find you and where they should be checking you out. Okay. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Deadly Dolls. Uh, you can read my bog, my bog, my bog, my blog. I hope I write better than I speak. Uh, that is DeadlyDollsHouse.com, where I still cover a horror movie a week. Uh, and for podcasting, come listen to The Feminine Critique, where I talk about movies with the much smarter Christine Makepeace. Fantastic. Um Again, thank you for joining us, and uh, hopefully we can get you back soon, because this was an absolute pleasure, as always, to work with you again. Yeah, thank you, Emily. Oh, and lovely to meet you there, Stephen. (laughs) Uh, We're going to take a quick break now. Uh, When we return, we're going to be looking at what we've been watching, and Stephen will be returning with another tale from the Asian cinema dark side. Stay tuned. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Recall Podcast here at ThatMomentIn.com. I am your host, The Vern, and on each episode, myself, along with a guest, we'll be talking about an iconic scene from a classic movie. Which films will we be discussing? Well, that's all up to you, because before each episode airs, we're going to be giving you a poll of great fits to choose from. Whichever one gets the most votes, that's the one we'll be talking about. So, listen to the Cinema Recall podcast on the site thatmomentin.com or on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Podomatic, or SoundCloud. Thank you very much, and hope you enjoy it.
Welcome to the first half, where we were joined by Emily to talk about Battle Royale. Now it's time for myself and Stephen to also be looking at uh, what we've been watching since the last episode. And I'm happy to say, Stephen, that I've actually watched some Asian cinema because we've had a couple of episodes where it's all like not really had much to be watched, but this week I've managed to cross off a couple of things off that have been sitting on the watch list for quite some time. Um, first off being uh, Shaw Brothers' House of Traps which is a kung fu movie from 1982 and one of the last movies to be produced with the Venom mob. And this is a film which was an absolute pain to get into if you were a collector of this movie, because it either exists on, like, grainy VHS or VCD, so it's nice to actually have, through 88 films, a nice copy of the film. What's not so great is the fact that the film is just overcomplicated as hell, especially for a kung fu movie, and it's a shame because you've got this great setup where... This um, prince is attempted to lead the revolt against the emperor, and he's basically got this list of his co-conspirators, along with several stolen tra- treasures hidden inside his little house of traps. And basically, this room is, it may, will make Jigsaw blush how well this thing's set up. As you basically go in, and even if you're a skilled martial artist, it's designed to work against you, all these different traps and elements that uh, come out and, and maim you, but. It's a, it was a fun film, some fun kung fu in there, but the plot was just stupidly overcomplicated and and uh, not not so great. Uh, but I mean, for yourself, Stephen, if you've been watching much or has it been a couple of things? Like you, I think the last few episodes I've best pretty much been saying, oh no, I haven't watched that, haven't watched anything Asian, and I feel yeah. kind of bad. But I have been able to rectify that this month because I managed to get hold of a version of the new Stephen Chow film. Okay. Which, of course, I think I've espoused on our before many times about how much I love Stephen Chow films. So we did the King yeah, the God of did. Cookery, didn't we? Um, so his new film, The New King of Comedy, which sounds very similar to his uh, 1982 film, The King. No, not 1982. What was it 1999 yes. film? The King of Comedy, um, which actually is a bit of a favourite of mine. Um, so the original King of Comedy, Stephen Chow, writer, direct. And it's um, it's funny without being overly slapstick and is basically a, a riff on his time trying to become a successful actor, um, along with a really frigging weird Tarantino homage at the end, which I'm not really sure where that came from. The new King of Comedy... Is Chow still, unfortunately, behind the camera? I think that's where he's going to be from now on. There's a new female lead, Yixing Wen. Basically, she's a film extra. She's been doing it for 10 years. And we sort of we go through her mildly comic adventures in trying to become a real actress. It's really funny, actually. It's uh, it's one of these Lunar New Year films. So it's, you know, it's, it's designed for the laughs and the and the big audiences. Not as good for me as The Mermaid, but still hugely entertaining, and any new Stephen Chow film is good for me. Awesome. Another film that uh, I watched recently was uh, Veteran. This is one that's been on the box for a while, and I think if you're over here in the UK, this is uh, a film that uh, was shown during the wee hours of uh, the morning, over on Film 4, and I think that's the best time. If you're looking for for cult and obscure cinema, especially Asian cinema, always make sure you check that sort of like past midnight slot and on your film for so you normally they show something like this one-off showing of a film and veteran was one of those films and this is a film from the director of like city of violence and crime fist uh ru sung kwan 
who I'm not sure if his uh, name that sort of stands out to yourself, Stephen, or not. Yeah, Ryu Sung Wan, um, South Korean director. Um, I've got it into my head that he's the brother of an actor, but maybe not. Um, they always confuse me, these Koreans. No, he's not. Um, yeah, no, he's, um, he's very much a director. What's my favourite film of his? No Blood, okay. No Tears, which... Um, because it's got John Joo Young on it, who she's one of my favourite actresses in the world. Um, in fact, yeah, his brother Song Byung um, is 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 one of the great actors, and we saw him in Perfect Number. Yeah, so, so he's the, the this director, the director of Veteran is the brother of the main actor from Perfect Number. But yeah, no, vet, Veteran's a good film, and absolutely, I saw that come up on film for one of these strange um, one-off showings. So. <laughs> He's um, what else has he done? The Berlin File, that's worth seeing. And the Battleship Island is one I've got on my to watch list, which I haven't got round to yet. But a very westernised director. Definitely I would say. so. I mean, he's also one of those directors that if you're reading a review, especially if you saw a four star review of this film, you more than likely hear the critics say, I've got such a crush on this director. And I think because I don't share that same love for his work, I mean, I. It was only until the, after the film finished I realised he directed both Crime Fist and City of Violence, both films I enjoyed. Now, Veteran, I mean, I was sold on it being an action comedy, and I feel that it was lacking in both areas, as here we've basically got the the loose, loose cannon cop who is put up against this spoilt uh, son of, the, of a, an investment company. And... Uh, it's just basically about those. It's basically you know the the cops versus the crooked business, and it uh, it starts off well. We have got this really exciting fight sequence within within a garage, and uh, this this detective uh, here played by Huang Ju Min. He's basically you know he's seen as being been the fact that he's been sued by all the cop criminals. He's been arrested for police brutality, and at the same time he's there here fixed crime scenes so that he can make it look like he was acting in self-defense. And it's a shame, really, the fact that the film we get at the start and the end of the movie isn't the film we got in the in-between, because in-between it just becomes more of sort of like a police procedural sort of crime thriller. And it was really sort of lacking those action and comedy elements that made the opening and closing so great. And the closing especially made me think that, you know, perhaps the director had been playing a lot of Yakuza because the whole way the film is shot and... This, this street brawl that it basically descends into after this prolonged chase for the uh, for the streets Mi Yong Dong, um, which again just brought to mind the end of Con Air. It just feels like as this whole final sort of fist fight that these two two characters are having on the street just reminded me so much of Yakuza the way it's uh, shot and stuff. But yeah, I'd, I mean, soon you said you like this. I found this a real sort of like three point five out of five sort of film for myself I just uh, I don't know it felt like it was missing something I felt that that I had an opening and closing of one movie and then some, they, for some reason he's sandwiched between this movie a completely different film so but which is something we get a lot in Korean cinema the the, 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 the genre shift the change of tone the complete change of pace I mean um, we do but at the same time when we uh, look at things uh, like just like you know Save the Green Planet that is done it feels it feels a lot less um, a little less ratchet than this film does. I mean, when we look at So Green Planet, the way it moves from like a comedy into like a 
almost like a straight-up horror film. It just flows so, so smoothly. And this, it just felt that it was so clunky and it's sort of like changing gears in, in genres there. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I'm always a big fan of Wang Jungmin. I, um, I was just having a look at his, uh, his CV. Obviously, we've, um, we've covered him before. Is he the shaman in the whaling, I think? Um, but I'm looking at his CV and there's a whole bunch of films that I'd happily recommend to you. Um, big star, basically, one of probably the third biggest star in Korea. So um, maybe that was colouring my um, enjoyment of it. He also was in Bit Sweet Life, a uh, film that we will obviously look at at some point, and Shiri, which I know I've written to make you watch on numerous occasions, so I don't think you were a fan of, but it's on my uh, to-watch list. Uh, yeah, well, I'd enjoy talking about Shiri. It's an important film, but not one I particularly enjoy. Uh, me on the Dragon Ball Watch, we're now on to episode 19. We have got more sort of randomness. We've got the Shions, who are like the evil sort of bad guys they're still traveling across time and space it seems it's it, i love the fact it sets up the fact that it's going to take him a year to get that and uh, it certainly feels like a year has passed in in the events that are happening in the film i mean obviously goku's son is going to go into training with piccolo um and he's basically spent i don't know about what feels like about 10 episodes running along a, a road to meet this mythical kung fu master in the heaven dimension only to find that uh, we're faced with this guy who looks like the butterball Cenobite from Hellraiser. <laughs> yes, I saw your post. <laughs> you go on our Facebook page, you can see these interesting moments, because I keep uh, posting them on our Facebook and Twitter feeds, like, every time one of these baffling moments come out, such as he's offered to play a game of Russian roulette at one point, because that's, uh, that makes perfect sense. And then I know, Stephen, we had a whole conversation at the end of the last episode off-air about... Uh, the problematic translation of Mr. Popov. I'm not sure the problematic translation really covers it. Just the problematic existence of Mr. Popo, maybe. <laughs> Who uh, is uh, obviously a mythical kung fu master and uh, basically looks like a guy in blackface. He's kind of like a looks like an Asian gollywog, I guess is the is the easiest way to describe it. But yeah, Mr. Popo. Um, yeah, if anyone's ever seen the sort of the tin, uh, is it tin, tin? No, Asterix. Asterix. The old Asterix, the cartoon books, um, they have a black character which looks a lot like Mr. Popo and um, has equally been wiped out of history. Yeah, I know in the, for some adaptations for the, for the States, they actually painted him blue so he looks like a Smurf, which I'd say is actually worse, but <laughs> I don't know, it's pretty uh, up in the air, but yeah, still enjoying Dragon Ball Z. It's got, it's, so random at times and I think if I was watching this like most other critics and people sort of in our community who watched it as a child I would probably view it a lot differently I'm not I'm, I mean I'm watching this as an adult without the assistance and nostalgia to it and there's just some wonderful randomness in it I mean the these these shines turn up on this planet and basically free the people and then decide when they're flying off, you know, we'll just nuke the planet. And it seems to be this reoccurring theme that whenever anyone gets in a fight with each other, it seems like nukes are being set off in the battlefields. Uh, they're just throwing energy balls. and just The whole planet seems to be blown up. I mean, the fact is that uh, Piccolo comments the fact that, oh, who replaced the moon? Indicating that it's been blown up at some point. So, uh, yeah, I'm... Still plugging away at that, and uh, no doubt by the next episode we'll have more randomness. But if you don't already, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and you get to enjoy such a random moments as, as those points out things from Dragon Ball, as well as other interesting news items and 
photographs and things that we find as well. Stephen, is there anything else that you've seen at all? So, in a bit of self-publicity time, I've um, been doing some more episodes of my own spin-off podcast, the, the, the World Tour. So I think I'm sort of slowing down now, having a more of a monthly kind of release strategy. So I think last time did I talk yep. about Amelie and Nikita? Um, that was the last episode that I published. Um, just about to record and therefore having watched my German episode, or actually my Bruno Gantz episode. And like you, I watched Downfall, for actually for the first time, which is kind of interesting. You said you never got around to watching it. I've not watched it, but I've been called up by Cinema Shame to watch it now, and they're, they're like, demanding results for me, so... <laughs> <laughs> I, um, yeah, so I, I've had the, C, the DVD of it for years, and I've never got around to watching it. The other film I'm pairing it with is Wings of Desire which is a film I adore. And I, because, obviously, Bruno Gant passed away recently, I wanted to pick another film. I thought, now's the time to finally watch Downfall. And, um, yeah, it's a really interesting experience. Um, it's not the film I thought it was going to be. Fantastic performance, in fact, fantastic performances, and avoids the pitfalls one was afraid that it was going to take. But it also was a bit... I don't know what... the word I, I don't think it had the courage of its convictions and okay. it ended up being more a morality a very a very thin-skinned morality play rather than a, a docudrama which is what i was expecting yeah i mean the problem with downfall is i've seen that many parody sequences of you know the big the big scene of him in the bunker where it's been redubbed into you know complaints about the release of blaze blue or Holidays in in black. It's, one of, the, it's one of the great YouTube memes, isn't it? Really. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I'm not sure, again. I'm not sure I can watch it watch it sensibly now without inputting one of those into its uh, into its place. But so, in, so that is a that is a very very tiny part of the film. Oh, and 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 spoilers. Hitler kills himself in the film and actually isn't in the last forty forty five minutes. So. Um, don't think of it as some kind of acting tour de force of Bruno Gantz's Hitler and therefore all the hilarious stuff that's been laid on top of that since. Um, it's much more of an ensemble piece and the story is actually about somebody else that was in those bun- in the bunker in the final days. So well worth a watch, but I'll talk about it more obviously on my own. Yeah, Bruno Gantz's Hitler is uh, ranked as being one of the best of all time. The second being uh, the Hitler we see in Last Crusade, which was played by... I think it's the headmaster from Grange Hill. Indeed it is. Mr. Mr. Bronson, isn't it? Yes, Mr. Bronson. (laughs) I would say he's always a good Hitler, but you can't really say that he's good and Hitler together, can you? I I don't think there's a good Hitler, except they did they was there not one in the boys from Brazil? Did they not accidentally clone one? I can't remember if they got that far. I'm not sure. I know there's a Stalin in uh, Godzilla Final Wars. Is there really? Yeah, one of the one of the team looks bizarrely like Stalin with a samurai I've seen sword. That. I need to go back and check that. Oh, and I did go and see the Lego Movie too, which is also glorious, but not as glorious as the first Lego Movie, but still hugely entertaining. Well, before we close out the show, we do have one final treat, and it's of course time for us to pass the controls over to Stephen, who's here to see us out tonight with another tale from the dark side of Asian cinema. Yeah, thank you, Owen. And I can't really think how I could go further away from the uh, the visceral delights of um, 
of Battle Royale to a sad story about a star of silent cinema. But here goes. The Asian film industry is like every other film industry. There's links to organised crime, suicides, murders, salacious gossip. And in this series, I have a look at the darker side of Asian cinema and tell you some tales about famous names that don't always want you to hear. Now, Elwood and I often talk about those icons of Asian cinema, the Jackie Chans, the Bridget Lins, those who become more than characters in the films in which they appear, rather they become something more, idols that are revered by an adoring audience. And this time I'm going to talk to you about one of those icons, but almost certainly one you will not have heard of. I'm going to take you back to the age of silent cinema, to early 20th century Shanghai, and tell you the tragic story of the original superstar of Chinese cinema. And it's another cautionary and tragic tale of someone whose star shone brightly but briefly. This is the story of Ruan Lingyu, China's silent movie queen. She was born as Ruan Fengen on April the 26th, 1910, to a working class family in Shanghai. Now, 1910 was to be the final year of dynastic rule in China. For the following year, Sun Yat-sen's successful revolution introduced China into a brand new era, a republic based on Western democracy, intended to usher the country into a new era of prosperity. And this transitional stage of the development of the nation of China was not easy. And it didn't mean that the young Ruan was born into prosperity. Indeed, her father, who worked for the British Asiatic Petroleum Company, died when she was only six, forcing her mother to work as a housemaid for the rich Zhang family. So shameful was this that when she was sent to school, it was only if she was promised not to tell anyone that her mother was a lowly housemaid. But desperate to help out, at the age of 15, Rian applied to the Mingxing Film Company to become an actress. Within a year, she'd made her first film, 1927's A Married Couple in Name Only. She impressed immediately, not only with her natural beauty and elegance, but her ability to convey complex emotions within the restrictions of silent cinema. It's an interesting sidebar that Chinese cinema would embrace silent cinema for much longer than the West. Remember, this is 1927, the year that the jazz singer came out. But in China, with its multitude of languages and dialects, silent film could cross cultural and geographic borders without being hamstrung by the complexities of language. I'm trying to come up with a way of describing just how powerful a screen presence Ruan was contemporaneously. Um, maybe if I told you that she was compared to Greta Garbo, you'll understand. And she she also embodied the opportunities and struggles that went hand in hand for young women in this modern republican age of Chinese society. Her career grew and three years later she signed with the Linhua Film Company and her fame equally grew and grew. She worked with the great, albeit usually leftist directors of the age and her versatility in playing writers, factory workers, wealthy socialites, prostitutes, flower girls, nuns, beggars, not made a only popular with audiences, but it attracted the interest of that common scourge of the entertainment star, the tabloids. Probably her two best known films today are The Goddess and New Women, 
The former, the goddess, is a tale of a prostitute trying to raise her son who commits one single violent act that ends in murder to protect him and now is considered one of the masterpieces of Chinese silent cinema. 1935's New Women tells the story of a modern young woman who strives to be a writer and that the tragedies that befall her eventually lead to her suicide. It's based on the true story of another Chinese actress, Ai Jia, who had committed suicide the previous year. It would be a terrible forewarning of what was to come for Ruan. As successful as she was in her career, Ruan was not lucky in love. Her first love was Zhang Damin, the fourth son of the family her mother was housemaid for. However, he was, uh, well, a bad egg and a compulsive gambler, and Ruan eventually left him for a rich tycoon, Tang Jishan. Zhang, in need of money, would go on to sue Ruan, including her stealing and claiming her as his wife. He'd try again in 1934, accusing her of adultery. By this time, she was actually living with Tang. But then Tang is a notorious womanizer, and he was having a not-so-secret affair with another actress. Ling Zhen. Well, the court cases and the intrigue are like catnip to the eager tabloid press, and salacious details of Ruan's life filled the papers, with salacious details helping to sell a public hungry for gossip and scandal. It was too much for Ruan, and on the 8th of March 1935, she committed suicide by taking an overdose of sleeping pills. Left at the scene was a suicide note containing the phrase, gossip is a fearful thing. Tens of thousands apparently attended her funeral and reports that the procession stretched three miles through the streets of Shanghai. It's even recorded that three other women committed suicide during the funeral march, so overcome with grief they were for the death of their idol. Sadly, she was not able to rest peacefully in death. Her final film, the government propaganda piece, National Customs, espousing the new life movement popularised by Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist and anti-communist government, was released posthumously, and it doesn't feel like a fitting epitaph in the context of her other work. Zhang, the bad egg, was somehow able to make not one, but three films about their story in between 1935 and 1938, and one suspects he would have continued to do so had he himself not died broken penniless at the back end of 1938 himself. And, along with many others, her tombs ransacked during the Cultural Revolution. In more recent times, her suicide note has been considered suspect, with many thinking it was either planted or amended by Zhang to attract more publicity and therefore more money to him. Indeed, there were two further suicide notes apparently discovered as recently as 2001, with one of them actually blaming abuse from Tang as the reason for her taking her own life. Sadly, although Ruan made 30 films in less than eight years, only a handful survive. Nothing from her earlier career exists, victims of careless archiving and the Cultural Revolution. Fortunately, the goddess and new women are fairly trivial to be able to see. However, even if silent films are not your cup of tea, there is an alternative. Stanley Kwan sent the stage a 1991 Ryan Lingyu biopic starring Maggie Chung Manyuk is a stylish and sensitive portrayal of this story, and I'd heartily recommend it. Very nice. 
Right. Uh, well, this brings us to the end of another edition of the Asian Cinema Phone Club. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, really, over the last 25 episodes. It's been an absolute pleasure. And seeing how the show and our little community has, uh, has grown and just the connections we've made with the uh, community at large, be it by bloggers or podcasters, it's just been such a wonderful community to be part of and to interact and work with uh, over these 25 episodes that we've put out. I mean, it's been quite a journey we went. I mean, we obviously start off with, like, Ghost in the Shell and King Kong Escapes, and through there we've seen Asian cowboys, we've gone on spy missions, we've met sympathetic hitmen and gone on hallucinatory journeys with uh, actresses that are just now figuring out what the internet is. It's it's uh, It's been quite a, a diverse catalogue we've built over these 25 episodes, and I know I'd like to thank everyone for joining us, and Thank you as well to my uh, cousin Stephen for obviously joining us each uh, for each episode and uh, you know making this show sound as educated as it does. So thank you. <laughs> well, it's you know it's always a pleasure. I really enjoy it, and thank you for inviting me. I mean, we started this, I guess, as a spin-off from your one of your previous shows. It um, was. I mean, we the Mad Bad and Dangerous to Know podcast, and yeah, we and did one band. show. Yeah. And, yeah. And. And I guess you thought it was something worth proceeding. And it's been really good for me. Of you know, not just working with you, but some of the other people like Emily tonight and Zoe, who I wouldn't have come across in my normal writing world. And it's given me the inspiration to go off and do my own thing as well. So thank you very much, sir, for the last 25 episodes. And here's to 25 more. I know. Thank you very much. And obviously we are going to be revealing our own top 50 Asian films of all time. We're each doing a list of 25 each. Uh, the first episode of that will be coming soon. Uh, but episode 25, what are you going to kick off the next block with, Stephen? Well, I've really struggled to come up with something to top Battle Royale. But I think I want to go horror. Okay. And I want, I think, to go for one of the classics, mostly so I can talk about some directors who I think are, let's just say this is the film that everyone says nothing else they've done is as good as this. And I want to talk about the Pang Brothers, the eye. Okay. Um, mostly because I want to talk about the Pang Brothers, but we'll watch the eye as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so obviously episode uh, 26, we will be looking at the eye. Um, another sort of second wave uh, film when we obviously had the initial films that broke through and then obviously with the eye I think that was sort of really sort of the second wave that came through uh, afterwards as sort of J-horror and just Asian horror in particular sort of exploded so definitely an exciting one to talk about and uh, and uh, yeah I definitely think the Pang Brothers are as someone that we should definitely his work we should uh, also be, be uh, looking at but uh, obviously in the meantime make sure you uh, if you give us a like or hit the subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to us and, uh, you know, leave us a review. You know, the reviews really help. They get the show profile of the show raised and it, it means more to us than all the patron dollars in the world. Um, just the fact that we're able to uh, expand our audience and, and, you know, introduce more people to this cinema that we love. It just means a lot to us. And if, uh... <laughs> okay, you can check out our uh, complete archive at asiancinemaphoneclub.wordpress.com 
On there as well, you can also find various other articles, as well as our mixtape series. You can also find the transcripts of Stephen's Dark Side of Asian Cinema um, as well. So there's plenty to uh, check out on there, as well as the uh, the archive of 25 episodes that we've uh, recorded, including our particularly fun bonus episode as well. But until next time, uh, thank you as always to my co-host Stephen. Thank you very much for having me, and thank you everyone for listening. And uh, thank you as well to Emily for uh, being our special guest host and uh, coming on to talk to us about Battle Royale. I uh, hope we will be getting back on soon. Until next time, wish you all a very good night. Yeah,